Good afternoon. Can you hear me? Yeah, I guess it's on. I'd like to thank you all for being here. Uh, we've got a wonderful program for you today. Uh, first, uh, James Miller and Michael Weiss are going to talk to you about their new report regarding um, the Kremlin's great adventure in the Donbass. And then we're going to have Steve Pfeiffer and uh, Miroslava Gungadze come up and talk about the report. And we'll then offer to you an opportunity to ask some questions. Um, I believe you all have the bio sheet on our participants, so I will not read it to you. Uh, but let me just say simply that um, the Interpreter Magazine, uh, Michael and James Miller have been at the forefront of a true fact-based conversation regarding what's going on in Ukraine over the past 17 or 18 months. And in the absence of, generally speaking, a seriously energetic and inquiring Western media, they provided a perspective that is absolutely essential to understanding what is happening in Ukraine's East. And the report they're going to present today, which I had the opportunity to read a month ago, is a strong contribution to understanding uh, the various facts making up Moscow's hybrid war in Ukraine. Not such an easy read because it is absolutely chock-filled with data. But the data put, points you in broad, a clear direction as to what's happening and um, gives you a sense of the commitment the Kremlin has made to winning a war, albeit under the radar, in Ukraine's east. And with that, let me call Michael and James up to talk about the report and get this thing started. Um, so we thought we would have more of an informal conversation about the report rather than a very abstruse presentation of all that meticulous data. Thank you, John. Um, I, so the way that this report has been structured is in two sections. We set out from the outset to prove that certain material that has been imported into Ukraine indeed came from Russia. It was not taken or confiscated by the, the so-called separatists from Ukrainian stockpiles because there are very specific models and makes of tanks, armored personnel carriers, anti-aircraft uh, and, and uh, radar guidance systems that Ukraine simply has not it got, it doesn't possess. So the first half of the report is, is about material. The second half of the report, and in some sense a more difficult task for us, was what we call Cargo 200. And this is a very controversial subject and one that's been scrutinized uh, ad nauseum in the media for the last two years. Cargo 200 is a Russian military euphemism for dead Russian soldiers. Um, the problem, of course, is that Russia is technically not at war with Ukraine. So proving the existence of dead soldiers, or in, in many cases wounded soldiers, um, is quite arduous. Uh, you rely on both a combination of social media and uh, investigative journalism. And so the way we're going to sort of discuss this is Jim, who uh, was really spearheading the first section, will talk about materiel. He will turn it over to me, and I'll talk more about Cargo 200 and how we came to some of the conclusions that we came to. So with Hi. that, Jim. <clears throat> Thank you for coming. Um, you know, when I was first asked uh, to do this, this report, when we were first asked to do this report, um, I, was, uh, I was less interested about the question of can we prove 
that the Russian military was involved in Ukraine. Uh, because the evidence is so overwhelming, there is so much of it, um, uh, Western journalists uh, watched as, uh, as Russian military hardware poured over, uh, over the border. Uh, there is no question. Um, but what, I, what we were very curious about was could we look at the patterns of when those troops showed up, when specific pieces of military hardware showed up, and that could show us uh, sort of a window into uh, how the Kremlin was attempting to, uh, to influence uh, Ukraine uh, at first uh, with, uh, with, with more of a hands-off approach uh, through uh, the now infamous Little Green Men. Um, uh, and then uh, ultimately through, uh, through armored divisions, uh, paratroopers, uh, you know, uh, uh, elite Russian combat soldiers who are now operating um, and building bases uh, in Ukraine and building bases across the border. And, uh, and what we see is that we, when we look at the Ukrainian uh, political circumstances, uh, we see that at the start of the, the conflict, uh, Ukraine is politically very weak. Um, it's a, an interim government, uh, just uh, just sort of uh, recovering from uh, from the Euromaidan revolution. Uh, the the sort of the, the finances of the Ukrainian government are, are in a bit of a mess. But also, there's a challenge from uh, the Russian, led by the Russian media, I should say, the Russian state-controlled media. Uh, is this a legitimate government? Um, and we also know from our contacts with the, the Ukrainian government that there's, uh, there's questions uh, within the Ukrainian government. Can we trust the police? Can we trust the military? Can we trust uh, uh, state security services, uh, SBU or SPU, as they say? Um, can we trust military intelligence? Um, our radios were all manufactured in uh, Russia, and, uh, and, and they use uh, Russian um, uh, you know, techniques for communication. So can we even use our radios to give orders to our troops? Um, and, uh, and this is where the little green men uh, begin to operate and very efficiently capture uh, key weapon stockpiles all across eastern, eastern Ukraine. And what would happen is uh, sort of spontaneously a, uh, a group of uh, elite, uh, highly trained soldiers who operate using uh, very recognizable sort of special forces tactics would take over these police stations. And by the time they were done taking over these police stations, they would find a spontaneous rally of, of, uh, of anti-Ukraine uh, people were now outside to receive these weapons. And then the, uh, the, the, the special forces, uh, we believe, uh, would disappear. And, and this was the first stage. But what we see is as we move through May, as elections are coming up, the Ukrainian government hasn't suffered a counter-revolution. People believe in the electoral process in Ukraine, and what we see is, as a result, the military, the Ukrainian military, becoming more bold and saying, you know, the voters are saying, we, can't, uh, we cannot accept the status quo. Um, they're basically exclusively supporting candidates um, who are very uh, strongly uh, in favor of using the Ukrainian military to restore order in rapid fashion. 
And, uh, and that's what happens. You start to see uh, the Ukrainian military make rapid advances in, uh, in retaking territory that was held by the separatists. And then there is the key battle. Uh, on May 25th, there is the Ukrainian presidential election. And early in the morning on, uh, and it goes very well, uh, universally recognized election. Um, oh, President Poroshenko uh, wins uh, with very clear margin. There's no revolution. Uh, the sky does not fall. And that next morning, <clears throat> a group of, uh, of Chechen fighters uh, called the Vostok Battalion, uh, they attack Donetsk Airport. And Donetsk Airport was the symbol for uh, modernity uh, in, in, uh, in eastern Ukraine. And um, they attack Donetsk Airport. They briefly retake it. And the Ukrainian military launches an extremely effective counterattack, uh, including the use of helicopters and, uh, and ground attack aircraft. And uh, over 30 uh, uh, soldiers, Russian soldiers, uh, and, and, and additional volunteers, these are maybe separatists or, uh, or people who had come from Russia to sort of fight in this, in this battle but weren't Russian soldiers, were killed in this event. And this becomes the, sort of the ultimate symbol and, and I think the ultimate trigger for a lot of what comes next. Because up to this point, you saw Ukraine uh, using its, uh, its air power more, its main advantage in this conflict, as a matter of fact. And at first it was helicopters, but at Donetsk Airport, it became, uh, it became ground attack jets. And, uh, and so uh, throughout May, you see uh, more Ukrainian helicopters get shot down. And then after this event at Donetsk Airport, all of a sudden you start to see these very large, conspicuous uh, vehicle-based anti-aircraft weapons. These are not your shoulder-fired weapons that could be smuggled in the back of a car um, and fired by sort of anyone uh, with very little training. Uh, these are highly sophisticated, massive tracked vehicles, um, a very rare sight in Ukraine. Uh, they were widely photographed by U the Ukrainian people. Um, and, uh, and there you have it. This is the sort of the first stage of moving from little green men um, sort of special forces, volunteers, or retired, um, you know, uh, Russian military folk uh, into the, the first uh, introduction of a professional fighting army into this conflict. And what you see, though, is that doesn't turn the tide because Ukraine continues to pick up speed um, in its anti-terrorism operation. And so now you can almost see the wheels in the Kremlin turning the midnight oil burning, because now you see the introduction of first T-64 tanks. Uh, the first T-64 tanks um, that appear, Ukraine also operates T-64 tanks, but Ukraine had not been using T-64 tanks in a significant way because there were no separatist tanks to fight. Um, so uh, interestingly, the first T-64 tanks uh, were uh, uh, up here in, in Ukraine. They have a different uh, camouflage that the, than the Ukrainian military uses. They're lacking the identifying symbols that the Ukrainian military uses. Uh, NATO, uh, a, a week later, releases image, uh, in, in satellite images of T-64 tanks, three of them, being loaded onto flatbed trucks. And uh, lo and behold, uh, T-64 tanks appeared the very next day in Ukraine. 
Um, and, uh, but within weeks, now you have captured Ukrainian T-64 tanks. As Ukraine is deploying its armor to the field, um, and you're seeing that armor uh, also appear in the battle. Uh, now all of a sudden, uh, by, by late June, by early July, you're seeing T-72 tanks. And uh, T-72s are very, uh, very important because when they first appeared on the battlefield, there was international press. This is the perfect symbol, perhaps, of how the media has covered this. Uh, international press stories about, look at the T-72, that is almost certainly a Russian tank. The Ukrainian government was not using the T-72. Uh, they possessed the T-72, but they could not, uh, they didn't make some of the parts. Uh, many of the parts were made in, uh, in Russia. So T-72s were in reserve in the West, uh, far away from Russia, and, um, and all of a sudden T-72s were appearing on the battlefield. But more importantly, some of the varieties of T-72s that were appearing on the battlefield um, were uh, modernized versions that Ukraine never possessed. Um, some of them, several of them in fact, uh, were uh, specifications of the T-72 tank that Russia had never exported to anyone. So this is very clear uh, sign of Russian mi uh, military uh, intervention. These weren't gifted in the sense that uh, they weren't mothballed necessarily, but these were very likely um, active duty military units uh, operating in Ukraine. Um, and uh, in, in the midst of this sort of escalation of anti-aircraft and tanks, uh, a civilian airliner is shot down. Um, and that's a story we all know, but what what is less clear, and I think, uh, I hope what this report shows, is that the civilian airliner that we shot down was a casualty of this constant ramping up of direct, uh, very reckless military intervention on the, on the part of the, the Russian military, um, in the sense that uh, as, the, as more Russian material, military material was showing up, you start to see areas that were formerly in Ukrainian military control in the east um, fall back into separatist control. But you still see that the Ukrainian military is advancing from the west. Their pace was slowed, but they were still advancing. But when MH17 was shot down on July 17th, is almost at the exact middle point where, uh, where significant momentum begins to be reversed um, in the Ukrainian military's efforts to retake uh, Donetsk in particular. Um, the day before MH17 was shot down, we saw the first evidence, filmed by the way by Russian citizens, um, of, uh, of grad rocket launchers, multiple launch rocket launchers, firing rockets into Ukraine from Russian territory. Um, how can anybody explain this in any way other than this is a direct Russian military intervention. And yet, it would be more than a month uh, before the term Russian invasion starts to get thrown around. Uh, and it was first thrown around by, uh, by the Ukrainian foreign ministry, um, not by Western powers, not by Europe, not by the United States, uh, not by Ukraine's allies, and certainly not by the Russians who still to this day deny uh, that they had uh, any, any uh, troops involved in, in this battle.
Um, so one of the things that has proven very difficult in covering this conflict is the vast amount of disinformation that has been pumped into it. Uh, and I don't just mean you know Russia simply denying that they have any formal military invasion taking place or occupation taking place. But um, you know, we've seen recently, for instance, this fraudulent or bogus report about 2,000 soldiers, you know, direct proof that 2,000 Russian soldiers. Uh, however, whatever the circumstances of this, it proves very damaging because what ends up happening is the Western media reports it. God forbid the Ukrainian government uh, imbibes it whole and regurgitates it. And all of a sudden, Putin can turn around and say, you see, they're just making things up. They're lying. And even if it emanates from Moscow or for some, from you know, some shadowy corner somewhere, uh, it doesn't matter. Because the, the point is to discredit and disconfirm that which is, in many cases, empirically verifiable. With the case of Cargo 200, that is to say, dead Russian soldiers, this has proven a very, very difficult task because a lot of the evidence we have for it derives from social media. The contacted profiles, um, Twitter, you know, uh, Instagram photos. These things uh, can be faked, obviously. Uh, they can be geolocated. There is a way to sort of track the provenance of them. But it, it, you know, we simply cannot rely on this kind of data without some corroboration or substantiation. Now, one of the central ironies of, of this conflict, and indeed, I, I hope this comes cl clean in the report, is we don't rely on what the Ukrainians say. We certainly don't rely on what, mm. what the Ukrainian government says because more often than not, we end up helping them because they're getting it wrong and they're making mistakes that embarrass themselves. In fact, the bulk of the evidence to suggest a direct Russian invasion of Ukraine has come from Russian journalists, Russian civil society. This is a point I cannot emphasize enough. So you know, the government has made every attempt to, to castigate uh, these groups, particularly the, the Committee of, of Soldiers' Mothers, an organization, an NGO that was founded uh, during the time of the Chechen Wars but has been reactivated because of this undeclared, or as we call it, dirty war in Donbass. Uh, these are foreign agents. They're hirelings of the State Department or National Endowment for Democracy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but what's most interesting is if you look at what remains of the independent or even quasi-independent Russian press, Novaya Gazeta, Slon, uh, Fontanka, Fontanka, which is a St. Petersburg newspaper. These are the guys who did all the spade work. What did they do? Uh, they, they went into Ukraine. They heard reports of captured armored personnel carriers. Uh, 31 out of 40 soldiers died in one day in the Battle of Donetsk International Airport. Well, where did these guys go? Where are their bodies? Then they went back to Russia, and they investigated grave sites, burials in secret. There was an, an entire air division, the 76th Division, uh, which took part in this battle. And there's a curious case of one uh, soldier, one paratrooper from this division. Um, his wife posted on VK, a, in red letter, a memorial that uh, Leonid has, has been killed in combat. Please come to the funeral. Um, of course, that gets taken down. Um, the grave site, which is in a churchyard quite near where the military base for the 76th Division uh, is located, has a tombstone with his name on it and gives his correct date of birth and a date of termination, a date of death that coincides with when he was said to have been killed in Ukraine. What happens when journalists descend on this? Mass thugs start pelting their cars with rocks, start driving them out of the gravesite. And one journalist put it very well. He said, you know, this is, this is not the face of, of you know, Russian propaganda or Ukrainian propaganda. This is the face of Vladimir Putin, an undeclared war in a neighboring country that is now bleeding us, Russian patriots. Um, 
A lot of the evidence also comes in the form of what relatives have said. I mean, it's very difficult to get mothers and wives to completely disclaim or deny the death of their, their uh, husbands or sons, right? So in many cases, journalists have gone and interviewed survivors of, of some of the dead Russian soldiers, and they recount very clearly. I was texting with, you know, uh, with Ivan uh, as he was boarding uh, the, the, the transport train uh, from Rostov, and he was telling me, oh, no, don't worry, honey, this is just a training exercise, and then I never heard from him again. And then bizarrely, President Putin starts bestowing these awards on various divisions or various combat brigades in Russia for duties rendered unto the, 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 the motherland. Well, duties rendered where and how, under what circumstances, and why are you giving these awards out now? Other things have begun to happen. Um, you know, it took a while. I think it took about six to eight months before Russian civil society exerted itself and started to protest all the, 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 the uh, aggregating evidence. So what did the Russian government then do? It tried to shut people up. It threatened them. Um, as I mentioned, you know, a, a, a wife of a dead soldier has to recant her testimony, in some cases even saying, here's the phone, and then puts on a male voice, and he claims to be the deceased. Um, but then there's no follow-up. Um, in the case of, there's a very famous example, and here's a perfect, uh, you know, sort of fusion between the open source intelligence or the social media model and classic shoe leather journalism. You know, Bellingcat, Elliot Higgins' uh, great website, um, tracked a Buryat soldier um, in Ukraine using uh, Instagram photos, what was posted on his VK profile, showing him posing in various locations. And then Simon Ostrovsky from Vice News went and actually went into Ukraine, took photos of himself standing in the same exact location, I mean, it's uncanny, and then went uh, all the way to Eastern Russia and actually found this guy, called him up on the phone, and he, he refused to meet with, with Simon and disclaimed any involvement whatsoever. So you know, the penalty that is being paid is not just on the Ukrainian side. Russians are, are suffering from this. They're not only losing soldiers, but then anybody who attempts to try and excavate the truth is, is sort of hounded out of business or, or completely shut up. I think this is an important point because from the very beginning of the conflict, uh, one of the, the, the things that struck me, and actually Jim and I were in Kiev just at the moment that Minsk I was being signed. So and, you know, this is what, late August of 2014. The ATO is succeeding, right? I mean, it is squeezing the, the so-called uh, you know, People's Republic of Donetsk and Lugansk like two pimples. They, they're, they're winning the war. And all of a sudden, things begin to shift. And the reason it shifted is there was an outward Russian invasion of Ukraine, both in terms of resupply of materiel, but then in terms of the injection of, you know, these are hodgepodge formations. I mean, we're not talking about entire divisions going in or entire brigades. Uh, in many cases, they're Spetsnaz divisions, right? So, you know, GRU, which is Russian military intelligence operatives, coming in and, you know, with conventional soldieries, uh, guys who have taken off their insignias. The one important thing to remember is you, when, you, when you, you are injected into the, the Donbass, you have to give your passport up. So it's sometimes very difficult to find identifying markers. But sometimes it's not. So in the case of um, you know, right after the Donetsk International Airport battle, a BTR, an armored personnel carrier, was seized by the Ukrainians. And inside were logbooks, uh, identifying uh, names, you know, ranks, uh, you know, all kinds of evidence that suggested that the people who were operating the vehicle came from Russia, not from Ukraine. So I think you know, th the one takeaway from this is 
you know, if the conflict is now beginning to de-escalate, if, if the temperature is, is being lowered, it's for a variety of reasons, but one of the most important is Putin simply can't keep this wrapped up any longer, you know? I mean, bleed Russia was a mantra I heard so many times in, in traveling Ukraine. Anti-war sentiment was so low in the summer of 2014 because the idea is if we sacrifice our sons and daughters, that means Russia will have to sacrifice its own. And this will eventually force some kind of cataclysm or crisis inside the Kremlin. So I think that has, that's actually been very well uh, effectuated. And, you know, indeed, you know, we, we like to talk now about political solutions to things that in, in actuality have military solutions. It's just they, be, they become resolved uh, through politics. Yeah, that's, that's a good point, Mike. I mean, and, and this is what sort of the first part of the report looks at is that if you look at the Ukrainian military progress, the war, well, first of all, the war wouldn't have started uh, if it weren't not for uh, Russia's little green then. Uh, the polling data is overwhelming. And you know, now uh, the Ukrainian military is now in control of many areas that, uh, that were formerly separatist hubs. Uh, uh, Slavyansk, Kramatorsk, these were, these were the, this was the heartland of separatism in Ukraine. And uh, you can't find supporters of separatism in those areas. Um, you know, there have been uh, numerous uh, polling data before this conflict started, and from those towns, you can't find support for separatism in these areas. Um, and then uh, when the Ukrainian military was conducting its ATO, when it was ready to, to win, to end this conflict, would there be problems? Absolutely. Would there be reconciliations? Yes, but the entirety of Ukraine except for Crimea, which is a different conversation, uh, would have been restored militarily um, and, and quickly. But it didn't happen. It didn't happen because of a direct Russian military in intervention. When you look at Minsk 1, Minsk 1 was signed at the point of a gun. And when it was signed, no one in the Ukrainian government and frankly, no one who we've talked to in, in Western governments believed that there was any chance that Russia would follow through on any of the, uh, of the demands of Minsk I. When Minsk II was signed, it was signed once again at the barrel of a gun uh, right before, in fact, uh, the Russian military led the, the capture of uh, Debaltseva, which was a key supply line. How important is Debaltseva? After that, uh, Debaltseva was a, is, is a town just to the east of Donetsk, uh, since it has fallen, there is now a rail line that runs from uh, an area of Russia that is not inspected by the OSCE because Russia will not allow it. That rail line runs directly from there to Lugansk onto Donetsk through Debaltseva. And the battle for Debaltseva was fought days after the second Minsk agreement was signed. Uh, so you see direct Russian military intervention. Now what you're seeing is that uh, the front lines are being, uh, e there's a, a, a new ceasefire, uh, which we think is, uh, is holding with an asterisk because there's still plenty of fighting. Um, but the front lines of all of the separatist positions are being defended by Russian armor, by Russian military bases, by Russian jamming equipment, which by the way is bringing down OSCE's drones, uh, by uh, military grade hardware, according to the OSCE, uh, and uh, anti-aircraft equipment, and uh, perhaps most importantly, honestly, uh, artillery 
and ground scanning radar to target that artillery and rockets. And this is an important point too. Um, you know, even when there is not a, a sort of uptick in kinetic activity, a so-called hashtag invasion, right? It doesn't mean that the Russians have gone quiet. Uh, the resupplies of Russian materiel this summer, when things have been, there's been a relative lull, there was a big push for Marinka, which was actually deflected quite admirably and, and ably by the Ukrainians. It didn't stop the importation of, you know, T-64s, uh, radar guidance systems, and all the rest of it. They are fortifying an ongoing occupation. It's now, you can call this many things. I would call it, an, you know, a sort of a, 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 a ceaseless invasion, if you like. I mean, mm -hmm. until the hardware and the troops, the flow of the hardware and the troops stops, I mean, what do you have? I mean, you have a, a very fortified enclave that can never actually be retaken, yes. right? Even the, uh, just this past weekend in Kiev, uh, the uh, Secretary General of the OSCE, Lamberto Zanier, told the, the crowd that uh, as of, as of uh, September 1st through now, through right now, uh, the separatists continue to get stronger because someone is, provi someone is providing them with armor and ammunition. And this, of course, leaves open the question. I, I know we're running short of time, so we'll wrap it up. What happens next? You know, the, is it the land bridge? to Mariupol, which would give Russia sort of an uninterrupted uh, you know, corridor all the way to Crimea, or now, and I'm sure we'll get into this in the Q&A, is it lower the temperature on Ukraine and turn up the temperature on Syria, right? Um, you know, Russia can fight two low to mid-grade wars at one time, particularly one war that it has not declared fighting. Um, so we, we mustn't underestimate their capability here. Um, the one final point I would make is, the reason that we know so much, the reason that a lot of this has been conducted in a remarkably sloppy fashion, the Russians actually screwed up. You know, Vladislav Surkov, the great cardinal of the Kremlin, is sent to Donbass to sort of whip up separatist discontent and find all these Ukrainians who are going to, you know, raise up this battle cry for Novorossiya or, the, you know, sort of the, the, the reinstated or the sort of Russian empire. It didn't happen. So Putin had to improvise. That's the reason that they had to send in tanks and leopard and lynx uh, systems and books. That's the reason they had to send in the 76th. So in a sense, there is some truth to there is a strategic miscalculation, but it doesn't mean that tactically they're not still winning. They are. I think on that note, we should probably turn it over to our illustrious panel. You're part of the panel, Mike. Uh, yes, no, I know. Oh. I was told to get off the stage once I was done. So. <laughs> Can you get on now? Oh, sorry. Thanks. Thank you. Well, gentlemen, thank you for that uh, wonderful start to our, our event. And I'd like to give Steve Pfeiffer a chance to comment, and then Miroslava. Steve? Yeah. Well, thanks, John, and uh, thanks for including me. Uh, I think what we've heard is a very compelling report that told us what most of us already knew, and that is uh, since April of 2014, the Russian army has been significantly involved in instigating and supporting armed separatism. Uh, it includes injections of significant amounts of funding weapons, including heavy weapons, as we heard, including some weapons that are not in anybody's inventory other than that of the Russian army. 
Uh, I think it also includes a significant command and control presence to unite separatist forces, and that continues. Uh, but I think what this report also shows is that uh, in the 21st century, when you have the internet, uh, commercially available satellite photography, Google Earth, and millions of iPhones and smartphones, it's awfully hard to conduct a secret war, particularly in urban areas. <laughs> and so even if you decide you're not going to believe American intelligence, you're not going to believe NATO intelligence, you're not going to believe the Ukrainians, what you have and what this report catalogs is a lot of evidence from ordinary Ukrainians and ordinary Russians, including Russian journalists and Russian soldiers uh, that document just how extensively the Russian military is involved in the Donbass. Uh, and it's reached the point where Kremlin denials about Russian presence there simply are not credible. Uh, I actually would say, it, it, uh, go further, I mean, it's, it's, it's disgraceful. I mean, they demean their own soldiers when they disavow their soldiers when they're killed or captured in Ukraine. Uh, now, let me step back and talk a little bit about the current situation, and then I'll shift to what I was asked to talk about, which is, you know, how does the West respond to all of this? And uh, I was in Kyiv last week. I, I think actually the ceasefire is holding since September 1 in a way that had, had not since Minsk II. Uh, we heard from one senior Ukrainian that in August, the number of ceasefire violations was running about 200 per day. We heard a week ago tomorrow, so Friday, whatever, the 11th, we heard that the ceasefire violations were less than 100 in the previous week. So, so something has changed. You also had, uh, uh, from Foreign Minister Lavrov a week ago today, a new line on the local elections where Lavrov said, in Donetsk and Luhansk, local elections should be conducted in accordance with Ukrainian law on October 25, as called for by Minsk II. Now, in Ukraine, I think the meaning of this is, it was unclear. You know, one question is, are the Russians reevaluating the quagmire they've gotten themselves into Donbass, and does this mean that they're going to change away from the goal, which I think continues to be destabilizing Ukraine? Uh, I think the more reasonable interpretation is what you've seen is a tactical change designed to lower the temperature before President Putin goes to uh, the UN General Assembly in about two weeks. And you're also seeing a Russian effort to try to see if you can generate some fissures among the Europeans on the question of uh, maintaining sanctions. Now, when you step back and you look at Russian actions over the last 20 months, you know, it's pretty clear Russian use of force first to take Crimea, but then also to start and then continued armed separatism in eastern Ukraine really is a, a significant challenge to the European security order. Uh, it violates the cardinal rule of the Helsinki Final Act, which was signed 40 years ago, which is that you do not use military force to change borders or to take territory. Uh, and all, in addition to that, I think we face a Kremlin that over the last two years has become less predictable. And, and that's not necessarily a, a happy consequence for the West. So the West does need to think through, how do you deal with this? What does this mean, not just for Ukraine, but for other neighbors of Russia? What does it mean for Georgia? What does it mean for Moldova? Potentially, what does it even mean for Belarus, where Mr. Lukashenko seems to show some signs of wanting to cut an independent course? And also, what does it mean for those NATO members that happened to border Russia, the Baltic states, and Poland. Now, you go back and you look about six years from now, uh, the Kremlin has exerted this rather unique international right that Russia has the right to defend ethnic Russians and Russian speakers regardless of their nationality or citizenship and regardless of where they are. Uh, and I don't think it's a high probability that you see Russian military action in Estonia or Latvia. 
but that probability is not zero. And, and NATO would be unwise to assume that it was. So I think it's now time for the United States and Europe, and here in Europe I'm focusing mainly on institutions, NATO and the European Union, to think through what is the policy response to you, what you're seeing going on in Ukraine. And I would break it down into three pieces, deter, constrain, engage. And I'll take each one in turn. Deter is primarily the United States and NATO, and that is taking steps to make sure that that bright red line that separates NATO territory from Russia is indeed bright, red, and very clear to Moscow. It means, I think, bolstering NATO's conventional force capabilities and presence in the Baltic region and Poland. NATO has made some progress in this regard with posting some forces there, preposition of equipment. It would be smart to do more. The second idea, constraint, is really looking at steps that you can take to reduce the opportunities that Russia has to make mischief in those states that I call the in-betweens. Ukraine, Moldova, Georgia, states that are between, on the one hand, Russia, and on the other hand, institutional Europe. And this is things like sanctions, and the sanctions should continue as long as egregious Russian behavior continues. But it also includes steps like strengthening Georgia, Moldova, Ukraine, so that you reduce their vulnerability to Russian destabilization efforts uh, and give them a better chance to develop. For Ukraine, it means, uh, I would argue, increased financial assistance from the United States and the European Union as long as Ukraine is serious about implementing reform. It also means greater military assistance. And the, and the point of the military assistance, as John and I have explained on the stage before, is not to enable the Ukrainian army to defeat the Russian army. It's enable the Ukrainian army to raise the cost to the Russians so that the Russians are deterred from further military action. Now, I think Ukraine also has to act, too. Again, if it's going to receive more financial assistance, it needs to be doing things on reform, uh, going beyond what it's done to date. And it also needs to implement the Minsk II agreement, even if I believe, and I think most analysts believe, the prospects of Minsk II being implemented are very, very low. And the reason is, on December 31st, which is the final deadline for Minsk II, when people ask, why did Minsk II fail, Kyiv wants to be in a position where the responsibility for the failure rests entirely on the Russians and the separatists. That's going to be important, for example, for an American effort to work with Europe to sustain and extend the sanctions that are applying to Russia. And finally, the third piece of this strategy, I'd say, would be at times the West should be prepared to engage with the Kremlin and with uh, Russia. Because there are some areas where engagement cooperation makes sense even if there are major differences over Ukraine, areas like arms control, counterterrorism, Afghanistan, where there's a convergence of interests. I, I do think that while NATO was smart to ratchet down NATO-Russia relations, I would restore them in one narrow aspect, which is a NATO-Russia military-military dialogue to talk about how you avoid accidents and miscalculations in the current situation where because of accelerated Russian military activity, bear bombers flying all around NATO airspace, you have a much higher rate of interactions between NATO and Russian military forces. And you don't want to have a mistake or miscalculation. And I do believe that you can manage that kind of engagement even when there are profound differences over Ukraine. But my final observation would be the better that the West does in terms of managing the deterrence piece and the constraint piece, the more likely that the engagement piece is to be fruitful. Steve, thank you very much. That was wonderful. I'm sorry, we should everything. have put you for your <laughs> No, I, just, I would just add a couple of uh, words that I think this, um, this report actually, it's a clear evidence uh, of um, 
West's unwillingness to call uh, what it is in Ukraine, war and uh, invasion. And why do Ukraine, uh, I mean, Russian or Ukrainian or other journalists have to dig or, or activists have to dig all the time and bring this evidence if it's so clear it's there? And I think uh, Western um, uh, government and NATO and United States doesn't want to see the reality on the ground. And um, so thank you guys for doing this and helping Ukrainian government to uh, to prove what they are being saying for so long. Um, we, we talk a lot about Minsk I, Minsk II, um, and what would happen next. Uh, and we cannot, I mean, a lot of discussion about oh, it would be a frozen conflict. Um, it's hard to see that as frozen conflict. It would be always a uh, burning conflict because there is no clear barriers in uh, in uh, eastern Ukraine as we see, let's say, in Georgia with Abkhazia or in uh, Transnistria with River. There is no clear barrier uh, at that area. So the fighting would continue. Uh, it would de-escalate, de escalate again, but we are not solving uh, this conflict with Minsk one, Minsk two, or anything else. The only way to solve this conflict is to support Ukrainian government, to strengthen uh, reform, and to support the military as well. Unfortunately, uh, West uh, or NATO doesn't have a clear um, uh, strategic policy toward Russia. We see, okay, let's deal with Russia when they're in Ukraine. Oh, let's deal with Russia where in, they are in Syria. Let's deal with Russia where they are somewhere else. But there is no strategy what to do with Putin and with Russia. And we have to stop seeing Putin as just a bad behaved boy. He's a criminal. He is a criminal. And this is very important to accept, understand, and deal with it. Otherwise, we would have that problem in Ukraine for a long time, for the years to come. And we better do it now that we, we can avoid a bigger problem uh, later. That's just a little bit. Miroslava, thank you very much. I'm going to take the prerogative of the chair to offer my own comment on, on what is happening right now and then ask some questions of our panelists. Uh, Michael, James, and Steve all pointed to, to the um, stop, or rather the drop in military activity in the East over the past couple of weeks, and especially over the past week. And um, Steve even pointed out some signs that maybe the Kremlin wants to tamp down its ambitions in Ukraine. Uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov said a week ago that the elections in the Donbass and the DNR and the LNR should be held the same time as Ukrainian local elections, and they should be held in conformity with Ukrainian law. Um, a minister um, in the LNR and the DNR, Mr. Purgin, who was known to want to conduct an offensive to take back of all of quote-unquote Novorossiya, was purged by a much less um, aggressive character, Mr. Pushilin who happens to be registered to participate in Ukraine's local elections. 
So we're seeing a variety of um, facts pointing to reduced military activity in the East. Uh, this coincides with the increase in diplomatic activity, the fact that the, four, the three presidents of Ukraine, Russia, and France, along with the Chancellor of Germany, spoke by phone a week ago, actually a week ago yesterday, and agreed that the foreign ministers should meet uh, last Saturday, which they did, and that perhaps they should get together on October 2 to see how you could uh, implement Minsk in a more efficient manner. And this is all happening as the IMF is predicting that this year the Russian economy will fall by 3 or 4%. This is happening, as Michael pointed out, you have at least 600 Russian soldiers dead in Ukraine. Growing concern among, among people in Russia about their f troops fighting in Ukraine. And uh, oil prices at roughly $42 a barrel, with Goldman Sachs predicting they'll drop to 20 which would, would truly increase pressure on the Russian economy. Uh, my sense is that we're going to see a ceasefire that's kind of working at least through the October 2 meeting of the, of the three presidents and the chancellor. And I wouldn't be surprised if the ceasefire goes beyond that for a month or two or three, as Moscow probes to see if this would induce the West to ease sanctions. President Hollande already said in a, in a very, I think, mm. foolish fashion, right after the phone call last week, that we should be moving towards easing sanctions. Uh, as this is all happening, and Michael alluded to this, you have a, a real increase in Moscow's intervention in Syria. And this may provide Mr. Putin cover to reduce his, his um, aggression in Ukraine. Uh, the Russian media is focusing on the fact right now, not that there's been reduced fighting in the east of Ukraine, but that Moscow is opening a quote-unquote new front against the West in Syria. So Mr. Putin's excellent adventure in Syria might provide him cover to keeping tensions lower in Ukraine as he sees if, in fact, that can lead to a, a reduction in sanctions. None of this means, however, that Mr. Putin has given up his objective of either replacing the pro-Western government in Ukraine, in Kiev, or persuading that government to walk away from at least Western-oriented security policies. And he has underscored that even as he's reduced tensions in the East by building a base, a military base, 15 miles from the border with Ukraine and 90 miles from Kharkiv. Ukraine's second largest city. So this is a new variation of the game Mr. Putin has been playing to maintain his control of some form in Ukraine, even as for the moment he reduces tensions. And it's very important that the West understand what he's doing and make sure that there is no easing of sanctions until Minsk, Minsk II is fully implemented. Okay. John. Having said that, Steve. If I could just add two comments to John's points. Um, when I, I, I do find interesting, I, I do think that the Russian objective still remains to destabilize the government in Kyiv to make life more difficult there for them. Um, and, and perhaps even to bring down the, the Poroshenko government. Though I, I think that this is something where, if that is a Russian goal, it's perhaps a mistake. Because in my judgment, if Poroshenko falls, the replacement is not likely to be somebody more amenable to Moscow 
but my guess is that you actually have somebody from the right who's actually more hostile to Masoko. The other point I would make about the, about the sanctions is after spending three days in Kiev, I did have a, a day in, in uh, Berlin where I talked to German officials. And the message there I thought was very clear is, first of all, a fair degree of skepticism about what the Russians are doing now. And we heard this several places. The standard for easing sanctions is full implementation of Minsk II. Uh, and we also heard a degree of confidence that, you know, that will be the standard that is maintained by the European Union, uh, despite you know, some of these uh, comments being made by, in Paris that I think give us here concern. Uh, I'll just make one brief point. In <laughs> supporting Steve, uh, what President Alain did last week, he did in March, about a week before the EU decided to renew sanctions. Okay. With that, I'd like to give Michael a chance to comment. Yeah, well, you know, with the, the sort of Syrian adventure, or perhaps misadventure, I think this is very, very interesting because on the one hand, you know, we can make the case that, you know, some of the signaling out of Moscow and some of the behavior on the ground in, in the Donbass indicates a sort of conciliationist Putin or a Putin who knows that maybe his time is up and we, there's, you know, it's deal cutting time. Uh, on the other hand, let's examine what he's doing in Syria because this is very important. Um, the Iran deal is signed. A few weeks later, actually, uh, yeah, I, th I think coinciding almost exactly with the signing of the deal, Qasem Soleimani, the commander of the Quds Force, which is the expeditionary military wing of the Revolutionary Guard Corps of Iran, flies to Moscow in violation of international travel bans, but what do those matter these days, uh, to coordinate on what? Obviously on Syria. Um, we have this coalition that is failing in Syria and failing in such a way that CENTCOM is now tasking their intelligence analysts to cook the books and present a rosier picture of you know, this, this war against ISIS a year and change on. Putin has, I think, called America's bluff since 2011. We said in August of 2011, President Obama got up and said, the time has come for Bashar al-Assad to step aside, but I don't have to give you the whole four-year history of the conflict from not backing the Free Syrian Army when there was such a thing that was viable and was pro-Western to not enforcing the red line. America really has not wanted to see Assad step down. When, when the US government talks about the preservation of state institutions, what are they talking about? The Syrian Arab Army and the Mukhabarat. These happen to be the two organizations that are responsible for the butcher's bill that is Syria, 300,000 dead, much more so than ISIS. Putin has sort of taken the full measure of the United States and said, okay, you don't want to see Assad fall. Neither do I. Um, you are fighting ISIS. Great. My FSB is sending guys from Dagestan, jihadis from Dagestan, into Syria to join ISIS because better they blow things up over there than they do on my soil. So, and by the way, you know, screw you for Afghanistan. He has built his own coalition, a coalition that consists of Russia, Iran, and what remains of the Assad regime. And now this new phenomenon, the National Defense Force, which is essentially the Syrian Basij, sectarian militia that is going around doing ethnic cleansing. In Zabadani, nobody's talking about this. My friend Faisal over here wrote a great piece about it. They're ethnically cleansing Sunnis from Zabadani. Putin has built his coalition and told the US, you can join mine. We said, no, we don't want to. Uh, General Allen spoke uh, in London a few days ago and said, look, the reason we don't want to work with the Russians in, in, f in fighting ISIS is their, uh, their threshold for collateral damage differs slightly from ours. 
so Putin has said, if you don't want to join, if you don't want to let me join yours, I'll force you to join mine. I'm going to build a forward operating base in Latakia. I'm going to send T90 tanks. This is interesting, right? T90 tanks. Jim gave you a whole presentation about the tanks that have been injected into to Ukraine. He hasn't sent T90s into the Donbass. He's sending them to Latakia. Why? Because Latakia is being contested by a consortium of Islamist uh, rebels called uh, Jaysh al-Fatak. Uh, he's going to send Sukhois, MiGs, you name it. Uh, he's sending uh, SA-22 anti-aircraft missiles. Now, I'm reading all this stuff in the Western press. What does Putin want to do in Syria? And I'm rubbing my eyes and thinking we are the most incorrigible, uneducatable society if we cannot figure out what Putin is doing in Syria. You don't need SA-22 anti-aircraft missiles to foster a political transition, nor do you need them to fight ISIS, which has not got fighter jets. What is he doing in, in, in Syria? He's rolling us. He's saying, if you don't work with me, thereby legitimating Assad, which I know you really want to do, you just can't for public relations sake, accidents will happen. The chutzpah of a guy to basically say there's going to be a mid-air collision between a MiG and a F-18 Hornet so soon after MH17. I mean, this is titillating for him. I, he loves it. And, and what are we doing? We're letting him do it. There's nothing we are going to do to stop it. Russia will have an ample military base in Latakia in addition to the floating atoll that passes for a naval supply base in Tartus. They will start dropping bombs, not on ISIS, although they'll say they're going to do that, but on civilians and on rebels, including, I think there's like two guys left that we've trained up that are fighting in Syria. Those guys too. And he'll say, this is the war on terror. This is what you want. I called you first after 9-11, like you should have been working with me from the beginning. I think, this is an, I think this is more clever on his part than anything he's attempted in Ukraine. And yes, he will use Ukraine. He will use the partial kind of sort of maybe implementation of Minsk II as leverage. And he knows the Europeans don't really care about Syria, are dying to return to a status quo ante where they can get right back into bed with Russian business and Russian state-owned energy companies. And that'll be that. I think we cannot try to mystify that which comes demystified, you know, on its face. Uh, and this is very alarming, because Syria, I think, is lost at this point. Michael, I wish you wouldn't be so shy about presenting your, your, <laughs> your views. With that, let's open it up to the audience. Tamori? Thank you, Tamori Akubashule. Thank you for the report, which is um, a very important piece already now, not for the history, but uh, already now because it can be a, a reference point for many things that is happening. So using the journalistic articles as a reference point is not always useful. This is a book of full of evidences, and that's very helpful. Actually, my um, comment is about what Steve said. In your approach, I think it's... Um, self-defeating strategy, I'm sorry to say that, because exactly because we are forgetting that we have to help Ukrainians to win the war, and there is a military solution, uh, we are uh, you know, inviting Putin's in Syria and other places. So it's uh, what uh, I've heard, and correct me if I've heard it wrongly, is that let's just be on the defensive, let's not irritate Putin more, let him keep Crimea uh, Donbass and any other places that you're already keeping um, and let's not irritate them to do more and let's cooperate where we need to cooperate and we see now that Russians are very skillfully you know, multiplying uh, places where you need to cooperate like Syria or tomorrow will be Cuba or something else. So uh, 
on the contrary, I think keeping sanctions for the sake of sanctions doesn't make any sense. Give Ukrainians possibility or equipment to win this war, to show the Putin the bloody nose in Donbas, not sure about Crimea yet, but in Donbas at least, and we will see a different Putin. Be on offensive, why you should be on defensive and uh, allowing him to do what one uh, American president, I think, uh, said that if you cannot solve the problem, enlarge it. So Putin will enlarge this problem further if you will be fine, you know, with his gains now and say, okay, don't advance now here, let's talk about problematic issues somewhere else. I think it's a high time to realize that if the West will not go on offensive, if the some European countries will fall off, fine. I prefer victory in Donbass than sanctions. I think what the report says, and very rightly so, what put Putin in a position to you know, rethink its policy was not sanctions, but dead soldiers. It's very brutal to say, but that's the reality. Anyone want to comment on You misheard what I said uh, significantly. Uh, and first of all, I, I, I said greater military assistance to Ukraine. Now, I think, where, I think where we may disagree is, I don't think we can give the Ukrainian army enough to physically drive the Russians out of the Donbass. You know, you may have a different view, but I, the Russian military is much larger than the Ukrainian military. You know, that battle is not going to be won by the Ukrainians. And the reason I'm talking about providing military assistance to Ukraine is so that in the event of another Russian offensive, they can make it more costly, including more cargo 200s back to Russia, and thereby deter Russia. And you use the combination of Ukraine's ability to raise the cost of further uh, military incursions, and you sustain the sanctions, which I believe are having an impact. Now, to date, I think Putin's been fairly successful in terms of rallying people to say, let's stand up to the West and show them you know, that we're not going to knuckle down on these economic sanctions. And it's worked in the short term. Is it going to work you know, 6, 12, 18, 24 months from now if the West stays united and keeps those sanctions going? I think that there is a chance it will undermine public support for uh, the Russian policy and secure a change. Because again, I don't think you can win this war militarily. I think you're going to have to have other means. Well, just, just to comment on Syria, um, I have to say, I don't think I understand what Putin is doing in Syria. I think he's opened himself up to potentially a quagmire on par with what he's got himself in eastern Ukraine. And he may have a challenge when he has to explain to the Russian public why are Russian soldiers being killed? Because he's been open about that. Russian soldiers are in, in, in Syria. If they start coming home in body bags, how does he explain that? And the other question I wonder about is, um, does he begin to give ISIS the idea that it's time to start a new front? And if you look at places like Chechnya and Dagestan and Ingushetia, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of dry wood there that can be lit with the right match. See, I, I disagree with that because I don't yeah. think that the Russians are going to be fighting ISIS in Syria. I think they're going to be fighting everyone else, which is what Assad has been doing. There is no ISIS in Idlib. There's no ISIS in Idlib. There was a great headline, and there's a coordination between Putin and Assad in their messaging. Mm -hmm. No coincidence right before the GA, mm -hmm. right, which is what, next week? Um, Assad came out and, and gave an interview and he said, uh, we invite the, the rebels to help us fight ISIS. I said, no, it's the other way around. The rebels should invite Assad to fight ISIS because he's not been doing it. Mm -hmm. uh, you can count on almost two hands the number of sorties that have been mm -hmm. launched against. Uh, I think Russia, they're, they're playing this very, very carefully and they are preying upon what is the unspoken US policy here, which is 
you know, like we don't really care so much about a transition anymore. It's all about making sure they don't sack Damascus and they don't sort of spread and metastasize beyond where they already have, you know, held territory. Un unfortunately, I, I just, uh, one word. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think that Putin is, have to explain his, to his public anything. He really, the public would, would eat whatever Putin says. And uh, why he's doing what he's doing, it's all driven by internal policy. He doesn't want to deal with problems in Russia. He's going el elsewhere, el somewhere else to, to make a mess, let's say, Ukraine or Syria. And um, uh, so uh, it's all about building greater Russia. And it's all about fighting West and fighting United States. So that's. And I, I actually have a, a, a sort of point, both, uh, all three you make. Last um, comment on the straight. Varislava, you brought up uh, that there's no dividing line uh, in, in Eastern Ukraine. There's no clear boundary between uh, these separatist territories in Ukraine. And you actually see this play out all the time uh, because the fighting happens in very predictable uh, locations where sort of the separatists are uncomfortable either with how close Ukrainian positions are or with the sort of the vulnerability of, uh, of their own positions. And, and, and the positions that are being fought over now have been fought over since Minsk won. Um, but what you see is you see that the separatists will use artillery and they will position this artillery in residential neighborhoods. We, there's, there's so much video of this. They will park a rocket launcher uh, right next to uh, not just one, but they'll park it in, in like an alley between high-rise apartment buildings. And you can hear the children uh, playing in the videos where you see the rockets being fired. Um, the Russian-backed separatists have advanced ground scan radar um, it, Mike and I wrote an article about this, uh, the, the Linsk, uh, the, 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 the Leopard, what is it? Yeah, the um, there's, a, there's a few different models. Uh, they're Russian, they're Russian military, they're uh, not used by Ukraine, they were not captured by Ukraine. Uh, the Russian military has supplied advanced drones to the Ukrainian military. The Ukrainian military has a grand total of zero of these advanced surveillance drones. This gives the separatists the ability to uh, target Ukrainian positions. Can Ukraine shoot back? No, they cannot. Because uh, if they do shoot back, those shells will land in civilian areas and they will kill uh, not Russian military. They will not eliminate the threat. So basically what has happened is that since Minsk won, the Ukrainian people die. Um, on both, they're all Ukrainian people. Uh, the Russian military is not paying the price because Ukraine can't hit them back. When they try, sometimes they hit, but a lot of innocent civilians die. We could fix this very easily. Um, uh, General Petraeus and uh, retired General Petraeus and, and uh, retired General McChrystal both recommended uh, supplying uh, advanced ground scan radar, uh, more advanced uh, drone surveillance equipment, and, uh, and, and, and certain uh, types of ammunition like the javelin uh, that can knock out uh, tanks at a distance. Uh, so these are the types of things that I think are they def they're defensive. They would certainly help uh, Ukraine hold the line. But I think, okay, 
if you're going to fire rockets at us, now we're going to start knocking out those rocket launchers. And once again, you go back to the point of raising the cost for Putin. And you don't have to do that by launching an offensive. And I don't know about the, uh, the, the wisdom of launching an offensive, but I think there's, uh, there's a happy medium supplying uh, additional equipment could, could fix Next question. No, no, let's get someone else. Please. <laughs> Sorry. Hi, um, I'm one of the authors of the report, Catherine Fitzpatrick. Um, I just wanted to point out um, something that I, I think is often overlooked with this conflict, which is every other conflict in the world that I've ever monitored that had peacekeeping would have something called DDR, which means disarm, um, demobilize, rehabilitate. This conflict has just the opposite, it has nothing like that. It ha it's institutionalizing the hybrid army in the form of the mm -hmm. local militias. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because Minsk gives the, the uh, Donbass, People's Republics, the right to maintain their own so-called militia, or Apalchenia. Those people, and there's at least 20,000 of them by the Ukrainians' own estimations, um, they remain. So you could pull back Russian tanks and troops. They remain across a very porous border. I mean, we, Jim recently got the OSCE to acknowledge the 475 kilometers of this border. That's 25% of, of Ukraine's land border with Russia is open to and controlled by Russia. The pressure on Ukraine now is have elections, give autonomy, reform yourself. There's never any rhetoric about give to Russia, give back the border to Ukraine. And that, I think, has to be stressed more that aside from the arming issue and so on, the rhetoric needs to change about that border. It's porous, it's how they get through all the arms and ammunition, and that will continue because there is a whole substrate of people there that Russia can re now rely on. And just to add one other factor, anywhere from 600,000 to a million refugees in Russia, from, from mainly from this area, uh, the relatives of the fighters, Russia doesn't want them and is starting to push them back. So all of those unhappy people come back to their armed husbands and brothers and they all remain. So Russia may withdraw, but the, the separatists, so-called you know, Russian-backed separatists, re remain as a problem for Ukraine that's yeah. got to be addressed. And we have to help Ukraine address it. And part of that means putting pressure on Russia over the border. Anyone want to comment on that? Uh, yeah, Ka Catherine, first of all, Catherine Fitzpatrick, a uh, key member of our crew and a, a key uh, co-author of this report. Pierre Vaux, another co-author, uh, couldn't make it. He's in London. Um, so thank you very much. Um, Putin stole two cars from a dealership. He stole uh, Crimea. He stole uh, the Donbass. And won a Super Bowl ring. And, and a Super Bowl ring. Thank you. As the New Englander here, I appreciate this reminding. Um, but then what he's done is he's smashed up all these other cars in an attempt to steal more cars. And now what he's saying, it, uh, the, the car dealership is uh, enraged. But what he's saying now is, you know, I'm going to stop smashing these cars. I could keep these two, right? And the police are saying, oh, yeah, no problem. You can keep Donetsk, you can keep Lugansk, you can keep Crimea. It's not an issue. The, you know, the, the two countries are so uh, interconnected militarily speaking, and, and this is something that I find fascinating. I actually thought, or I still think, that we're not quite done yet because, yeah. look, so much of Russia's own military equipment, from parts for ICBMs to fighter jets, is manufactured where? In Ukraine, right? Dnipropetrovsk in particular, one area that didn't fall 
thanks to a very loyalist oligarch. Um, Ukrainians are ripping up these contracts. Antonov just now canceled their, their, you know, their manufacturing. So you know, Russia has this plan or this, this sort of phantasm that we're going to have a million-man army. No, it's nonsense. But you know, they are absolutely investing in hard power, mm. such that NATO is now worried about closing the you know, sort of air, air supremacy gap. Um, where is he going to get all this stuff from? You know, those convoys, of which I lost no count of the number, something like over 30 of them, what did they do? They didn't bring humanitarian aid into Ukraine. They robbed Ukrainian factories of all the infrastructure materials. You know, so he, they are destroying the very, I mean, Ukraine has is two things. It's a breadbasket, as Timothy Snyder points out, but it's also got a huge manufacturing base that the Russians have relied upon for decades. They're destroying the latter at their own expense. You know, I mean, but this is this is sort of, the classic dictatorial style. You know, you burn down half your country just to prove a point or to stick it to the guy you don't like. And that's respect also Putin and Assad have quite a lot in common. Um, but absolutely, what Kathy just said is, is crucial. I mean, this is, this is sort of the, uh, you know, the, 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 the permanent sort of status of an armed conflict. It's, I think in, in one of the, the, the pieces I wrote, we call it a, a frozen conflict, but always oven ready. You know, it can be reactivated at a moment's notice. And by the way, we haven't even talked about Russian military bases that have been built for the purpose of resupplies that are along the, the Ukrainian border, and tens of thousands of Russian soldiers that are still stationed there and holding snap exercises whenever you know, they want to send a signal to us about sanctions or anything, really. So this is not done by a site, I think. You know? And don't forget all the military bases they're building in Crimea to control Absolutely. the Black Sea. And naval infantry fighting forces from Crimea, Sevastopol, who are now going to Syria. Maybe and, that's the reason he wanted it. And new nuclear bombers in both Crimea yeah. and, uh, and Kaliningrad. And by the way, and I, I don't even know particularly why this is relevant, except it needs to be said, um, Russia, uh, over a year ago, kidnapped an Estonian agent. Estonia is a member of NATO. Last I checked, they do a whole lot for NATO. Kidnapped an Estonian agent in, in sort of the height of the fighting in Ukraine. And uh, almost no press about it. Uh, it's sort of, it's just gone away. Not just the height of the fighting in Ukraine, but I think 48 hours after President Obama went to Tallinn and said Article 5 is inviable. And the day the NATO summit ended. And the day okay. the NATO summit. Other questions? <laughs> Yeah, Ken Meyercourt, World Docs. Uh, in light of the refugee crisis in uh, Europe, uh, which can largely be attributed to our military interventions in the Middle East, do you think the U Europeans would be hesitant to support us if we pursued uh, a military option in Ukraine? Yes, I mean, they've made it clear. And I think he's, he's counted on that fact. I mean, there is no European cohesion of which to speak. He knows that from an economic standpoint, from a political standpoint. Um, Getting the EU to follow us on sanctions, I think, was a heavy lift. This administration actually does deserve credit for that. But they don't want to continue these sanctions. I mean, we've, we've talked already about uh, the French president saying, OK, enough already. What can we do to put us back in, in everyone's good graces? Um, yeah, the, the Swedish ambassador to Ukraine told me last week that he is very proud of the fact that there's EU unity on sanctions against Russia, and that this is this is proof uh, that the European Union is working. And by the way, he has pushed very hard to make sure that that's happened. And so, my, my hat tip to Sweden. Um, but at the same time, we have to remember that throughout all these things that we were talking about, the. Uh, interjection of troops and materiel into this conflict, 
we had a major European power that was really excited about the idea that they were selling amphibious assault warships to Russia. And last I checked, uh, where are those ships going to be used except for against Europe? Um, so, yeah. you know, I mean, you know, this is, this is the situation. Um, it, you know, G Germany is very hesitant or was for most of last year uh, to, to put serious economic uh, sanctions in place. Um, so, you know, now these sanctions are in place and they're very vulnerable. I, 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 let, let me disagree with that. Uh, okay. Because, no, because, um, uh, no, I, I think there are certainly there are countries in Europe that want to do away with the sanctions and get back to business as usual. But I also think that there are countries, Germany, Sweden, Poland, others, who do recognize that what Russia has done is the yeah. single greatest security threat to Europe of the last, since the end of the Cold War. Yeah. EU policy has been that when you apply sanctions, even if it's for a year at a time, those sanctions are rolled over until such time as the objective is achieved. Mm -hmm. And I would note that last June, the EU extended sanctions by six months till the end of uh, January of next year, not at the political level, it was done by ambassadors at the technical level. Yeah. So I, know, I, I think we're gonna have to work to keep the sanctions on. But the idea that the sanctions are a house of cards that are gonna sort of be blown over, like, I think that's just silly. Uh, we're going to have to work on it, and I think we can sustain it, but I think we also have friends in Europe who understand that these kinds of sanctions are important, and that until, and again, the, the, the word we heard every place in Berlin was, until Minsk II is completely implemented. But and that means that the Russians have to do a lot of things which they haven't done at all. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I mean, I, I worry about moving the goalposts for implementation or the definition of, of implementation. I mean, you know, we, we reported that actually OSCE is clocking up more ceasefire violations than either, than either the Ukrainians or the separatists are willing to acknowledge because there is a sort of bilateral effort to pretend that everything is, well, it is, it is better than it used to be, but it's, it's by no means peace. Um, mm -hmm. So my fear is that the politi politicization of Minsk II um, will drive this sort of effort to say, okay, look, we've done everything we can. Uh, this is just the fait accompli now. We have to, get, we have to do business with the Russians. Well, I I, 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 first of all, I hope you're wrong on that. I hope and, you're and, wrong. And, 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 and I actually think that uh, you, know, you may be overly pessimistic on that score. We'll see. I usually am. <laughs> I, I, I'm I, I think Ru Russia would do... Uh, um, Europe were not ready to actually impose sanctions a year and a half ago. Uh, during the, before actually election, uh, Poroshenko election, uh, uh, it, when there were discussion in Europe, they would say, no way. We would never find uh, um, the cohesiveness in Europe that every, uh, every country would agree on imposing sanctions. Eventually, when the war uh, was expanding and going on, and uh, they actually realized we do need to put sanctions, and we, they actually agreed and did it. So I think at this point, we don't need to, uh, we have to just show leadership. And I think United States have to show leadership, and NATO have to show leadership to support Ukraine militarily, and give them defend that, those defensive weapons, at least that at least to keep the conflict uh, at, at the level as it is right now. And, and they, the Euro, Euro, Europeans can be opposed at this point, but eventually they would have to agree to it because the, we, we would see 
I mean, bigger issue later on, and they would have to agree. But there is no leadership. The, the issue is that nobody taking responsibility, uh, helping and, and solving this conflict, or even willingness to do it. Let, let me add just one more optimistic note here, too, which is that. Um, you were always optimistic. Well, I yeah, remember no, for okay. yeah, yeah. 20 years. Right. <laughs> I keep trying. <laughs> um, no, uh, when John and I were in NATO headquarters in January talking about the question of providing military assistance, and just to remind folks, back in February, we were two of eight authors that put out a report saying there should be greater military assistance. We were talking about a billion dollars a year, to, including provision of lethal weapons. What we heard at NATO was that NATO as an institution would not, but that mm -hmm. if the United States provided lethal arms, that a number of other NATO countries individually would do that. Now. My guess is, analytically, is that as long as it looks like things are quiet, that question is going to remain dormant. Uh, although I would argue that the logic of deterrence would say you ought to do it anyway. But if there is a route break in fighting, my guess is that the politics here may change and may change in some other NATO capitals as well. OK, question over here. Excuse me. Oh, my name is Vlad Salaev. I'm a Army, uh, United States Army officer. I was a. Uh, I had a recommendation actually that I was sitting here that I've read a lot of different analysts, a lot of people have said about this solving this conflict that goes against, you know, it's very controversial, it's very different from what I've heard everyone talking about today, but I still, I don't know, I felt the need to say it. So we talked a lot about NATO and there's a lot of people that said in the 90s that it was a mistake to expand NATO and do all that. I, I disagree with that. I think expanding NATO was a good thing because it made Europe more democratic and it actually increased security. But personally, I think it was perhaps a more creative solution could have been thought of to try to incorporate Russia within NATO instead of exclude it. Now, I know that sounds very controversial right now and not very many people have the stomach for that. But if you look at the 1990s, when Russia was essentially on its knees, so to speak, Yeltsin asked to join NATO and he was denied. Even Putin in 2001, as one of the panel members mentioned after you know, he made that first phone call to George Bush after Afghanistan or after 9-11, he had asked the same question and there was no interest in allowing that to happen. In 2009, at the height of the reset between Obama and Medvedev, Medvedev proposed an alternate security framework to kind of, I guess, as a replacement for NATO and that was rejected pretty swiftly. Now, it's not an easy, <coughs> issue, but I think that one can see that from the question of perspective, one can see why Russia could potentially feel threatened by that organization. I know that, I know that's not, like I said, it's not, a, it's not pop, perhaps popular to say, but NATO isn't a group of stamp collectors. NATO is a military alliance. And so I personally think that in order for this scenario potentially not to repeat in other in-between nations like Moldova, Perhaps the issue of Euro-Atlantic security with Russia as an equal stakeholder could potentially be reevaluated. That's just the solution that I have. So. Steve, you want to address this? Yeah, yeah uh, two points. I mean, first of all, there was no serious bid by the Russians in the 1990s to join NATO. Had there been, we actually, I, I, was, I worked at the National Security Council staff for President Clinton then, and we actually, there was an answer. Because the question, what if Russia says we want to join NATO? And the answer was, we are prepared to consider that, provided that the Russians do what we ask of every other aspirant. And it's not just reforming your military, but the biggest piece is democratic political systems that are compatible with those of NATO. Because NATO, it's a military alliance, but it's also an alliance of 
common values. So the answer was, if the Russians are prepared to do that, you know, the answer should be yes. The Russians never made that kind of serious bid. Instead, though, of doing that, there was an idea which was, in parallel with NATO enlargement, to create a NATO-Russia institution and to build a NATO-Russia relationship that would be cooperative in a way that the Russians would regard NATO as a security partner. So they wouldn't care if NATO enlarged. Now, I think, in retrospect, we underestimated just the amount of antipathy in Moscow towards the idea of NATO. Uh, and we perhaps could have been a bit more creative, but again, you know, there was an opportunity there. Uh, the Russians also weren't very creative. So th there was a channel had the Russians wanted to work with the West. And, you know, I would argue that Moscow did not take advantage of that. No, there, there's a, there's a, Um, I don't think so. I, I, yeah, I, I think that I don't think that's correct. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, 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 I was in the government at the time. I, I, I certainly did not see that from the Russians. Let, let, let me offer one more piece of, of uh, one more perspective. Uh, I, I think that the argument that the expansion of NATO um, excited, you might say, the wrong inclinations in Moscow has some merit. But I think it has been abused to justify Russian policies, which we believe are not justifiable. And let, let, me, let me elucidate. Uh, what we're seeing in Ukraine is the logical result of a policy that was begun in Moscow at the very moment that the Soviet Union fell apart. The whole concept of frozen conflicts was pursued by the Kremlin in 1992 and 1993 before there was any NATO enlargement. And it's safe to say, on the basis of the principles um, enunciated by the Kremlin today, and for that matter, back in the early 90s, read Serhii Plohi's excellent book, The End of Empire, and you'll see some of it there. Uh, it's safe to say that the policies that the Kremlin are pursuing, is pursuing right now in Ukraine, they would apply without a doubt in the Baltic states, in Bulgaria, in Poland, yeah. if these nations were not, quote unquote, safe behind the NATO wall. And uh, you know, go back and look at what Moscow was doing in Georgia in 1992, yeah. in Moldova, in Transnistria in 1992, in Nagorno-Karabakh, which is a little bit different than the other two because of the, well, a little bit different, but not too much. And the policies we see in Ukraine were policies that were established then, and that we chose not to address in the West at that time. And again, these all predate even discussion of NATO enlargement. And just as a final point on this, because one of the things I've sort of made an amateur study of is, is sort of how Russian propaganda and disinformation works best when the West actually puts it back out there. This idea of NATO as some kind of hegemon or Pac-Man gobbling up countries, uh, you know, without their consent. Yeah. This is the subtext of these sorts of questions and these kinds of statements. No, it is. I mean, look, countries have to vote. They have to want to join. You know, we meant, Jim mentioned Estonia. Let me give you an example. Uh, it was a huge scandal, both NATO and in Estonia, and I know the Estonian government fairly well, when Herman Sin, uh, who is an Estonian defense <laughs> official, was found to be a Russian spy at the upper echelons of NATO. And what was he tasked with doing? Finding the secret NATO war plans for Russia. The problem was he never delivered because they don't exist. So the, the Kremlin understood that actually this was not about you know 
parking tanks in Moscow or, declare, or you know, preemptive nuclear war, anything of the sort. If Russia wanted to be in NATO, Russia could be in NATO. It could democratize. Yeah. You know, it could do the things that are sufficient. It, this is not the Warsaw Pact. We don't invade and then say, you have to join, or we're going to throw you in, in labor camp. This is, this is nonsense. Well, and, a, and a parallel conversation is, uh, well, what about the expansion of the European Union? Isn't that some sort of a threat to, to Russia? First of all, you see, uh, you know, going back, uh, you know, some years now, and it's probably never going to happen now, uh, interest in Moscow about joining the European Union. But, but even uh, besides that, uh, this weekend, I, uh, this past weekend in, in, in Kiev, I had a chance to talk to several high-ranking diplomats from various uh, European nations, and I posed to them uh, that how, why didn't, uh, why didn't the West, Western governments see this crisis coming? Because we saw it coming. Uh, the interpreter started as a as a as a media analysis. Uh, this is what we did before the Ukraine war, primarily. What we did was we looked at uh, you know here's articles that are out today in various pro Kremlin uh, independent outlets and uh, Kremlin controlled outlets, and uh, and and here's some statements from uh, from uh, Russian government officials and. How? What's the sort of uh, you know mix here? Uh, what can we sort of discern from the tea leaves uh, based on uh, how these statements line up or not? And uh, and we saw this coming. We saw that w there was a building uh, momentum, uh, an ideological momentum inside Russia, inside the Kremlin, inside the Russian media that you could not allow. Uh, the European Union to expand, that it was an existential threat to the Russian economy. And this is bogus, because the entire purpose of the European Union is built uh, in, in the antithesis of zero-sum game. I win, you win, we win. That's Yanukovych's the purpose. Party of Regions campaigned on joining the association agreement. Yeah. They actually had the European Union flag co-mingled with the, the banner of their own party. Yeah. And how did they do that? Because Putin said, yeah, go ahead, I don't care. Yeah. So he changed his mind. Well, yes, so this is the point. Um, so all of these European diplomats, um, who were a bit on the defensive by the question anyway, um, fair enough, they all said the same thing. Look, but we had conversations at very high levels with Moscow about, about uh, Ukraine and these other countries joining the European Union and at no point in time did they ever voice any concerns whatsoever. So while the Kremlin media, and this is, I, I think this is an important point on, on so many levels, because, um, you know, we need to focus a little bit less on what Kremlin uh, official line is, and we need to focus a little bit more about what they're feeding uh, the, the, the Russian people through uh, the Russian media. Uh, which they now control entirely. You know, I when I uh, started at the Interpreter in 2013, I was told by people who knew Russia far better than I did, who were on our team, uh, "Oh my God, the state of the independence of Russian media is just awful." And yet, um, I I could see the the where they were getting this argument, and yet there were so many independent voices in the Russian media. And since February 2014, those voices are uh, literally dead, figuratively dead, um, literally in prison, figuratively in prison, 
Um, the, the, those voices are relegated uh, to nothing. And, 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 and I think this is important when we talk about, you know, what's the future here moving forward. How are we going to crack the egg that is Putin's Russia, um, you know, if, uh, if, if now the Kremlin controls uh, almost 100% of the messaging inside, inside Russia? We're already five minutes over. I'd like to thank our panel for a very good discussion. Enjoy with this. Thank you.